Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, Who's in Charge? A History of Figurehead Rulers. The date, June 2021, and my name is Belisarius Avis. When they say there is a website for everything, well, I was not quite prepared to find one called the Order of the Merovingian Dynasty, but it exists. Quote, in furtherance of its intention to act as a genealogical historical order and to operate for educational purposes, the objectives and purposes of the Order of the Merovingian Dynasty are to educate, identify, and honor the memory of ancestors who were the kings of the Merovingian dynasty, unquote. Now, I thought I was a pretty hardcore historian, and I had been to many sites, but these people have me beat. Quote, collecting and preserving records, documents, and relics pertaining to the history and genealogy of the Merovingian kings, unquote. Oh, and by the way, only members of the dynasty can be, well, full members of the Order of the Merovingian Dynasty, which I find a little tad uh, problematical because by my count, there have been at least, I don't know, six royal dynasties between the Merovingians. There was the Carolingians, the Capetians, the Valois, the Bourbon. We, We don't need to go through all that, but at least six. And these guys ruled like 1,600 years ago. To be able to claim lineage to these kings is suspect at best. It was not like there was this SQL database or 23andMe in those days. But one of the things you will not see on the website is much information about the mayors of the palace. The Merovingian dynasty owes its name to Merovich, or leader of the Salian Franks, who lived, well, probably because, again, records were a problem, and Merovich would have reigned somewhere between CE 447 to around 457, and emerges into history with the victories of his son, Childeric I, against the Visigoths, Saxon, and Alemanni, and Childeric's son, Clovis I, who embraced his role as a Christian monarch, went on to unite most of Gaul north of the Loire. Clovis then won the Battle of Tobiac against the Alemanni in 496, and on this occasion, he adopted his wife's Nicene Christian faith and then decisively defeated the Visigothic Kingdom of Toulouse in the Battle of Wall in 507. Now, two problems immediately beset the state built by Clovis. The first is that the Franks did not believe in promogenitor, the ability of the firstborn son to inherit all. Instead, the Franks had this crazy habit of actually dividing the entire realm amongst all royal children with the belief system that the best would eventually emerge. Okay, that would cause war and strife and all kinds of bad things, but hey, it was tradition. And then second... Beginning around the early 600s, the office of the mayor of the palace started to accrue more and more power, making the various kings of the Franks in cool-sounding places like Austrasia and Neustria into mere figureheads. As the Heritage History website notes, quote, an old Frankish writer says, the kings had only the name and nothing saves means for meat and drink. They dwelt in a country house all the year until the middle of May. Then they came forth to greet the people and be greeted by them and to receive their gifts. After that, they returned to their dwelling where they remained until the next year, 
the real power slowly began to accrue into the hands of these mayors of the palace. Originally, there was one in each different kingdom, one in Austrasia, one in Neustria, one in the third kingdom, which was called Burgundy. But then, as these various Frankish realms began to be united, so did the mayor of the palace begin to unite that power. And at the same time that the Moors came into Spain, this office was now handed down from father to son in a powerful family which possessed wealthy estates in the Rhine Valley and then could command a multitude of warlike followers. And eventually, one of this member of this family, one of the leaders of the mayor of the palace, named Charles Martel, dispensed with the fiction altogether of the Merovingian kings and took the crown, declaring himself king in 751. And thus begins the Carolingian dynasty that replaced the Merovingian. And it was left to Charles' grandson to take an even bigger title. And this figure was Charlemagne, first of the Holy Roman Emperors, a title that was to last for a thousand years. Now, it was not just the Franks who operated under a system of figurehead rule. In the 700s, the Japanese Yamato emperors ruled directly. In R.H.P. Mason's and J.G. Krager's comprehensive work, A History of Japan, the authors walked through the rise and decline of the Yamato rulers. Quote, The Yamato, whose dynasty was 250 to 710 CE, is the period of Japanese history when the Japanese imperial court ruled from modern-day Nara Prefecture, then known as the Yamato Province. The dates of the Yamato period encompass the archaeological Kofun, or ancient tomb culture period, and the historical Asuka period, which began with the introduction of Buddhism to Japan. Now, by the 6th century, the Yamato Yuji clan had predominated and established a centralized government in the Yamato plain near modern Kyoto, unquote. Now, one of these emperors, he was named Kamu, and his power and influence was one of the few powerful emperors really in the entire history of Japan, but it did not last much beyond his reign. Just as the Soga clan had dominated the ancient Japanese court, a new one, the Fujiwara clan, came to dominate this court. The foresight and open-minded nature of Emperor Kamu's leadership gave way to an effete cosmopolitan culture that increasingly neglected the provinces. The reality of Japanese rule was from that period, the Yamato period, through the Tokugawa shogunate of 1601-1857, and even after the so-called Meiji Restoration, the emperor's duties were largely ceremonial. They reigned, but they did not rule. And now let's turn to another figurehead, but not somebody who's necessarily the ruler of a nation, or at least not at first, and something a little bit more modern. Hindenburg is known to many Americans, but not in the German military and later president of Germany, Paul von Hindenburg kind of sense. Instead, it is known due to the destruction of the dirigible named for which exploded into fire in 1937, killing 35 people. Given that there were other disasters of the era of greater mortality, what made this one so different was both the dramatic nature of the Zeppelin burning out in a massive burst of flame and the advent of modern media coverage. Not only were there photographs of the disaster, but there's the highly emotive account of broadcaster Herbert Morrison, whose eyewitness account was captured by audio in real time. But for our purposes here, 
The name Hindenburg is about the power behind the power. At age 67, Hindenburg was an older man at the time of the breakout of World War I. For example, contemporaries such as the French general leader, Joffre, and British leader, Sir John French, were each five years younger than Hindenburg. And unlike these generals, or his superior, Hindenburg's superior, Helmuth von Moltke, who is also older at 66, Hindenburg had retired from the army. He wasn't even active, but he was recalled during World War I. Shortly after the outbreak of the war, he quickly achieved one of the few decisive victories of the entire conflict on the Eastern Front as the victor of Tannenberg. The French and British were relying on a Russian, quote, steamroller, unquote, to handle matters in the East. But after Tannenberg, Hindenburg oversaw a series of crushing victories against the Russians. And after Tannenberg, the Russians never really garnered momentum against the Germans and in 1917 quit the war altogether. It was also notable that that was the year that Lenin rose and later Stalin. Obviously stories for another time, but in pretty much every sense you can imagine, World War I was an epic disaster for the Russian people. Because of the stalemate on the Western Front and the lack of victorious German generals in that sphere, Hindenburg became a national hero and the center of a massive personality cult. And by 1916, Hindenburg's popularity had risen to the point that he replaced General Erich von Falkenhayn as chief of the greater general staff of all of Germany. And yet, the real architect of victory against the Russians was Erich Ludendorff. Partly because of the lack of the telltale von in his name, you almost want to say Erich von Ludendorff, but Ludendorff never obtained the higher commands in Germany's imperial army until World War I. But after the victories in the East, which he was an instrumental part of, he used Hindenburg's position to get control over the military and much of the nation's resources. According to the Museum Huis Dorn's archives, here is a direct quote from Kaiser Wilhelm II himself. Quote, Ludendorff caused me so many difficulties. He interferes in all kinds of political affairs that he does not understand. Now, this leads to many complications, unquote. The Hindenburg-Ludendorff relationship was not all about the latter pulling the former strings. Hindenburg provided stability and maturity to the often frayed and mercurial Ludendorff. Yet, there was no doubt of whom possessed the brains of the operation. Then, after the German defeat in World War I, Hindenburg again retired, and again, in 1925, he came out of retirement to be elected as president of the Weimar Republic at the age of 78, mainly based on his wartime popularity. In the Weimar Republic system, the chancellorship, then, as now, holds the real power, and it is a sign of the instability of the times that Hindenburg saw seven chancellors in nine years. But for his reputation and gravitas, Hindenburg could not prevent the taking of office of the last of these, and that person's name was Adolf Hitler. In an incident occurring in 1932, one year before Hitler was elected chancellor, the 84-year-old Hindenburg could not recognize Heinrich Brüning, one of those seven chancellors of the Republic. He simply couldn't recognize him at a train station. As Hitler, as Chancellor, beginning, as I noted, in 1933, began to consolidate power, various parties, including the Social Democrats, 
fought back. They kind of understood really what the true nature of the Nazi power was and tried to prevent it. Hindenburg, though, had always hated the Social Democrats and rejected these plans, saying that the SPD were, quote, traitors, unquote, who had, quote, stabbed the fatherland in the back in 1918 and could never belong to the Volksgemeinschaft, unquote. Therefore, the Nazis had his full support in the campaign against the Social Democrats. For his part, Hitler promised Hindenburg that once full German sovereignty was restored, he would restore the monarchy, which Hindenburg believed. As Hindenburg's health was failing, Hitler continued to consolidate power and finally even destroying the SA, an entity that he had earlier created. After Hindenburg died in 1934, Hitler abolished the office of president. Through all of this, from the age of 78 to 84, Hindenburg lacked the stamina or the presence of mind to prevent an even greater disaster befalling Germany than even World War I. And of course, this disaster fell upon many nations of Europe's, and in particular, peoples of Europe's, and most of all the Jews. But what Hindenburg was able to accomplish in a very dubious way was to provide a false legitimacy of governmental action as the Nazis rose and took power. Had he had the stamina or the presence of mind to understand what the Nazis really were, he might have at that point allied with the Social Democrats and Nazism might have been defeated then and there. Though Hindenburg certainly exercised more power and authority than the emperors of Japan or the Merovingian kings, it is still his historical legacy that he was the front man for not one, but two younger, highly ambitious men who each, in their own way, brought ruin to the Germany that Hindenburg loved. Now, one of the most prominent examples of, quote, rulers, unquote, with no power is the British monarchy today. Inaptly described in the popular TV series The Crown, the duties are supposedly divided between efficiency, represented by Parliament, and dignity, represented by the Crown. With Elizabeth II and her grandson Prince William, the dignity is in evidence. Yet, former Princess Diana fleeing from the press, Prince Charles' infidelities, Prince Harry whining on Oprah's couch, and perhaps most eerie of all, Prince Andrew's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein makes the concept of dignity, well, problematic. But of course, these people are not actually in charge of really anything. Instead, we look to Tony Blair, Theresa May, or today, Boris Johnson for spending the money or sending in the troops, the stuff of real rulers. Because the United States dispensed with figurehead rulers, we have only rarely had doubts about who is really in charge of the executive branch. Now, there were some very strong chief executives, such as Andrew Jackson or Teddy Roosevelt. In those cases, there was little doubt about who was in charge with those presidents. And we have had weaker ones, such as James Buchanan and Jimmy Carter. But in neither of these cases were there doubts that, ultimately, they were still making the decisions and still active in executive governance. It was just in those cases they tended to make the wrong decisions. Then, there were a few other exceptions where a president was truly incapacitated and the rules fiction was held in place. During Woodrow Wilson's final year in office, after suffering a a debilitating stroke, his wife was highly active in actually managing the aspects of the office. Unfortunately for the nation, 
The various damages by Wilson had already been done by that point. But when Wilson was elected in 1912 and again in 1916, there was no questions at that point about his mental acuity or physical fitness for the job because the stroke occurred two years after his second election. And here, I would like to make a distinction. In ancient, medieval, and even modern Japan, the emperor did not have direct governing power but was utilized to symbolize national unity, much the same way Britain is today. During World War II, Japanese did not hang portraits of Prime Minister Tojo, but they did of Emperor Hirohito. In a podcast entitled Meghan and Harry and the Monarchial Presidency, I make a case for an office to be built in the United States that contains something similar to the President of Israel, a rallying point in times of good and bad, and a figure to stay above the fray. The problem with American presidential leadership, especially in times of crisis, is that it is less about unity or preservation or prosperity than it is about political expediency. Thus, the natural evolution of some monarchies from that of alienation of parts of the nation, as was seen in England's Charles I and James II reign, to a monarch like Elizabeth II. But of course, we do not have such a system. Today, though, we have a conundrum. The system set up by Joe Biden's November 2020 election seemed like it would work pretty well. The original Biden admin model for the first 100 days was pretty straightforward. Like all 21st century presidents, lots and lots of executive orders. Now, I don't advocate for that, but what I was saying is, is that from an administration point of view, it seemed like it worked. Then the next step was the legislation, have Congress or staffers write it out, and then roll out the president for about 15 minutes in extremely scripted announcements, and then take no questions on the policy or the program. And though the natures of the programs were extremely transformative and very expensive, they were delivered for those little 15-minute snippets by old Joe, kind of like a kindly uncle of the American people. These programs include the highest peacetime spending in the history of the nation, and maybe of all time, and other bills are to transform everything from who controls elections to the food Americans would be allowed to eat and the way we transport our goods and heck ourselves. Per questions about all of this, in the single press conference Biden did, he only took questions from friendly reporters and kept close to those talking points where he felt most comfortable. It was like you studied really hard for a test and were given two possible questions on the essay portion. You only answer one of them and ignore the other. One of President Trump's many mistakes that he and his partisans made in 2020 was to depict Biden as practically senile, thus lowering the bar way too low. Biden does not have dementia, nor Alzheimer's, nor it is necessarily his age. Warren Buffett effectively runs his Berkshire empire at the age of 89. But the difference is that Buffett can take a day off or focus on insurance on one day and ignore his energy businesses. The problem with the modern presidency is that it is in so many things, too many in my opinion, that there is no day off and no ability to do this and not do that. A current president can focus on, well, probably relatively three to four big things. With W. Bush, it was supposed to be taxes and education before the jets crashed into those towers. Then it was the Middle East and foreign policy. Obama did stimulus, Dodd-Frank, and health care. Trump Taxes, immigration, trade, and a little foreign policy. But what we do not see are the daily security briefings, the orders emanating on food from the FDA or 
uh, issues about Title IX from the DOE. A modern president never takes a day off, has a real vacation, or gets away from governance. Now, of course, a superpowered executive that is so consuming is problematic to a vision of limited government or separation of powers. But that does not change the fact that a president has to be on nearly all of the time. So what happens when a superpowered branch of government of the most powerful country in the world is run by an individual without the focus, the stamina, or the energy to properly manage the job? Now, I had noted that for the first 100 days, the Biden administration had been fairly successful with showing a proposal and then having Joe Biden come out and spend about 15 minutes on it and then leaving the real work to the legislators or the staffers. But here's what the problem. Joe Biden is a tiring, sometimes slow 79-year-old. His party, the Democrats, only have six more seats than the GOP in the House of Representatives, a 50-50 Senate, and an electorate that has not awarded a president more than 55% of the popular vote in 36 years. In the case of Barack Obama, who enjoyed a 60-seat majority in the Senate and had that energy and personal charisma to drive his agenda even after his first year, it was possible to continue a certain momentum at least until the midterms. But Biden, just months into his presidency, lacks these qualities. Then the question becomes, who will become the mayor of the palace in this administration when he slows down even further? In 16th century England, various ministers from Thomas Wolsey to Stephen Gardner to Thomas More to Thomas Cromwell, lots of Thomases, ruled the nation. But note that of these four, only two died of natural causes and, in Wolsey's case, may have suffered the fate of More and Cromwell. Henry VIII may not have liked the day-to-day governance, but there was again little doubt who was in charge. Now, the U.S. government is not set up to English 16th century governance or 17th century French governance with powerful ministers calling the shots, well, until the king shoots them down. After the likes of Cheney and Pence, the vice presidency of today is better than the warm bucket of spit of, well, Lyndon Johnson's day, but it still has no formal powers outside of breaking ties in the Senate, which are always at the behest of the ruling party anyway. Chiefs of staff are truly schedule keepers and gatekeepers to the presidency rather than the ministers in their own right, and the cabinet officers are extremely well-defined at this point. Rather than a chief minister, shogun, or mayor of the palace, the Biden administration will see something more like the court of Edward, who was Henry VIII's son, where a council of nobles was supposed to rule during his minority. This did not happen as eventually his uncle, Edward Seymour, accrued more and more power. But again, this is problematic given the defined nature of the executive branch authority and, of course, the presence of the other two branches. In the past 70 years, the legislature's ability, envisioned as the most important of the three branches by the founders, has seen its authority subsumed by the executive for several reasons laid out in another of my podcasts entitled A Revival of the Case for Term Limits. The question is, as we move forward with the Biden presidency, who will be wielding that power? As Biden further and further lets power slip out of his hands, it would be hopeful that there might be a reassessment of the power of that branch especially as Biden's predecessor often brought ignominy to the office. But that did not happen then, and it probably won't happen now. 
The issue today is that the American people, both left and right, see the presidency and not Congress as the place of redress for a long list of ills, both real and perceived. Though Biden will eventually assume the posture of figurehead, someone in the executive will be ruling much, too much, of this nation. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast of Conservative Historian. Please check out more on our Buzzsprout site. This is Bell Avis. Thanks for listening.